going beyond the headlines, getting to the heart of the story. Calgary Today with Joe McFarland on 770 CHQR. Greetings and salutations, my friends. A very happy Thursday to you and yours. We are just one day closer to the provincial election campaign. And man, is everybody all ready to rock and roll with this campaign and getting it over with just in terms of consider the number of people who have already cast their advanced ballots. Clearly, a lot of people knew who they were voting for right from the onset and wanted to get it all over and done with. Or they just wanted to avoid all the lineups that could potentially happen come Tuesday. Or the other option, which a couple of people have said to me, is there is that idea of you can actually vote anywhere. And so might as well take advantage of that instead of having to go to your neighborhood ballot spot. Just kind of a handy little thing. There have been a few hiccups by the sounds of it. Uh, how was your experience? That's uh, something that I'm going to continue to ask over the, the course of the next couple of days here. Uh, I asked yesterday. I'll ask again. Uh, text me how it's been for you. 403-974-8255. We'll get to some of the answers uh, a little later on in the show. Now, now that we're back in the friendly confines of 770CHQRHQ, we're going to continue our leaders chats on Monday. We chatted with Alberta party leader, Stephen Mandel on Tuesday. We had liberal leader, David Kahn today. It is NDP leader, Rachel Notley. Yes. She will be joining us in just a couple of minutes. Uh, again, knowing full well that she was on with Rob a couple of days ago, I wanted to make sure that uh, our listeners here on Calgary today are privy to the same kinds of questions that were asked. And I'm going to be asking the same questions of Jason Kenny uh, on uh, tomorrow. If given the opportunity again, we've been, uh, we reached out last week to kind of get an idea. And one of the things that I really wanted to focus in on, you've heard everything through the news cycles, but what it boils down to is vision. What do you have in your in your rear, not even in the rear view mirror anymore. It's all about looking forward to me because we need to be talking about the things that are important, whether it's jobs, whether it's the economy, whether it's education, healthcare, all those kinds of things. It sound like a broken record, but only because those are the things that are important to you. I've heard it time and time again. So Premier Notley's going to answer some of those same questions for you in just a couple of minutes. We're also going to talk opioids. And this provincial election campaign, it's one of the the issues that isn't just in provincial jurisdiction, but also federal jurisdiction. And a few people have started to raise a few eyebrows as to how the crisis has sort of taken a backseat during this election campaign. Donald McPherson is the, uh, the executive director of the Canadian Drug Policy Coalition. He'll join us after four o'clock to dive into what he thinks the leaders should be talking about. And even beyond that is we're already past that point of what the leaders want to talk about. And it's about action once legislature is back in session. Regardless of the party who is in power, they are going to be inheriting a problem. People are dying on our streets because of the opioid epidemic. How do you tackle this? How do you get all three levels of government? Because as we've talked about, even with uh, the safe consumption sites and the, the, the response on First Nations as, as just a couple of the big examples, you've got to get all three levels of government singing from the same songbook. So we'll talk to Donald about that. We'll also chat. Brenda mentioned it during the news there. New Market announcing its tenancy at the New Horizons Mall just north of the city. 
Ken Aylesworth, Simons Valley Ranch Farmers Market, is going to join us after 4.30 to give us a little bit of a deeper dive into what to expect if you're going to be heading up there uh, over the next few months as they get ready to open up their brand new market there. Also, sticking with the provincial election campaign after 5 o'clock, Seniors Care. Something that I've heard a lot about, especially in the smaller smaller towns, but it's an issue that is uh, really rearing its head here in Calgary and Edmonton as well because some of these smaller places, they're seeing their facilities disappear. As a result, the people are having to come to here, come to the bigger cities, and they're filling up capacity. So how do you get to the bottom of that pl- uh, plan? We'll chat about that. And we'll also talk a really inspirational tale that uh, we're going to roll out in a special podcast uh, for Calgary today as well, because the chat that I had with Felipe Massetti was phenomenal. It was 15 minutes that you are not going to want to miss. I'll play a portion of that interview by the end of the show. Premier Notley joins us next here on Calgary Today. We continue now our leaders chats with NDP leader Rachel Notley. Thank you so much for joining us today. Good to be here. Let's start with the economy. Everybody says that's the number one issue as they go door knocking. How do you convince Albertans that you'll get things back on track when they're still trying to come to grips and come to terms with what they've gone through over the last four years? Well, there's no question that uh, the, the, you know, Alberta's been through tough times and, and Albertans are concerned about their jobs. It makes perfect sense. We've uh, gone through an unprecedented uh, time with the drop in the price of oil. That's why we've been very focused on finally making progress on something that certainly I, as an Albertan, have heard for decades, which is the need to, to diversify our energy industry and get more value out of the resources that we own. Our main number to plan was something that uh, we started working on soon after we were elected. Uh, we, we did the, the first round of it, and then we brought in uh, legislation last spring. And uh, we're moving forward on, uh, well, we've, we've already managed to make progress uh, with, you know, using just under a billion dollars of incentives to uh, bring in about $13 billion in private sector investment that is focused on um, upgrading, refining, manufacturing our oil and gas products here in Alberta. And so our made in Alberta plan that we talk about in the campaign uh, is uh, designed uh, to uh, basically increase that to $70 billion in private sector investment by 2030, uh, moving forward on that, that vision. And uh, that is a very definitive plan. It's not a sort of a cross your fingers and hope that people do it. It's something where we have a record of success and we now know that there's a lot of interest and we can make this happen. So between that and our other efforts to diversify the economy overall, uh, we believe we have a very practical plan uh, to grow our economy, to diversify, uh, and to provide more sustainable jobs that, that that outlast the ups and downs of the price of oil. Do you think your government was too heavy-handed in trying to make the change too quickly rather than go at it with a more balanced approach because of how you saw some of the pushback, uh, especially when it comes to coal and, and other things that, uh, that we dealt with over the last four years? Uh, you know, I think that uh, we there had been many, many years, quite frankly, where uh, the government of Alberta had basically been stalled on a number of different fronts because, I mean, we went through three premiers or I guess, uh, yeah, three, four premiers in, the, in as many years. And, and so we had really stopped making progress on many things that, that needed to happen. 
And and so uh, whether we're talking about our climate leadership plan, phasing out coal, uh, you know, working with industry to reposition it as the sustainable, uh, responsible producer that, that we know uh, that it, it can be and is, um, or whether we're talking about, uh, you know, things around, uh, you know, municipal government uh, review or, or other things that just had been ignored for so long, um, you know, we just thought it was our job to do the right thing and to move forward on these things. And, uh, you know, you're always trying to, you know, uh, strike the right balance. But I also think we've been pretty good at listening to people and accommodating um, uh, where we discovered that we need to do that. There have been a lot of promises made on the campaign trail, and a lot of people, myself included, look at the math, uh, look at the math, and go, "I don't know if it all adds up to a balance anywhere in the foreseeable future." What is the plan to get us back on that path to balance? Well, in fact, uh, you know, when we got elected, uh, we very quickly realized, you know, the price of oil dropped to another forty dollars beyond what had been predicted at that point, or maybe it was thirty, but anyway, it was a lot. And uh, and and we realized that uh, we were going to have to revise our path to balance. And so, uh, you know, early on into our mandate, we we put out the path to balance and said we're going to balance by twenty twenty three. Since that time, we have met or exceeded our own targets. For instance, even just this year in February uh, for our third quarter, uh, Joe CC announced that we're about $1.9 billion ahead of schedule in terms of our plans to reduce the deficit. Uh, so we are uh, holding to our targets. We have the best balance sheet in the country now, and we will have the best balance sheet in the country in 2023. And we've actually been uh, uh, noted by uh, you know people like the Conference Board of Canada, not exactly a, a big left-wing organization, for being uh, the, the best province in the country in terms of forward-looking presentations of our finances. So we think we can stick to that, and we can do that while still protecting health care and education. The challenge comes with the the Kenny plan to give a $4.5 billion uh, tax cut to big corporations. That's when we start to see challenges with keeping to that path to balance and still protecting our health care and our education. Are we still too bound by the roller coasters of the price of oil? I mean, there's been some moves made, whether it's uh, that's made the differential a little more bearable, but at the same time, it kind of feels like we're still, hey, the price of oil went up a little bit, so we're going to be a little bit uh, better off with our with our uh, road to balance. Uh, well, again, we've always used pretty conservative assumptions, and overall, uh, there's no question what we need to do is diversify. Uh, both, as I've said before, if we diversify within the energy industry, uh, once, you know, in those situations, uh, if we're someone that are buying feedstock to manufacture or process it and the, and the world price goes down, then as a purchaser of that, we end up doing better. And so there's lots of ways for us to, to uh, both diversify the industry and then diversify the economy overall. And that's what we're doing. And the more we do that, the less reliant we are on royalties. But, uh, you know, we have to do it carefully and, and we have to do it uh, with a clear plan, but not overnight because that just creates chaos and that actually undermines investor confidence and it undermines economic growth. 
You've asked, uh, you answered earlier on about education and healthcare, and I wanted to ask this question of you because I've asked the other leaders this question uh, already. Is it time for an audit of sorts in both of those areas? And the reason I say that is there seems to be a lot of people saying, hey, there's a lot of bloat or there's not, there's too much spending towards it or that kind of thing. And yet on the flip side, there are those who are saying we're not spending enough in those areas. Is it time to review the spending on both healthcare and education, be fully transparent on that spending, and then maybe hold different entities like school boards to account on any spending issues that do exist if they are actually there? Um, well, I think, you know, we, we kind of do that to a large degree already uh, through the Auditor General regularly looking uh, and, and through our annual budget uh, um, delivery as we, you know, so, I mean, we're always open to doing more. Um, but, uh, you know, as you know, we have the lowest health care administrative costs the lowest healthcare administrative costs in the country. Um, and uh, with respect to um, education, what is important is to ensure that uh, we are funding uh, the kids who, the new kids that are coming into our schools. So one of the things about Alberta is that we are one of the few provinces that is growing and is as, as young as we are. So those pressures are going to be there. Um, and, and the question is whether we continue to focus on providing a good quality of education or not. And I believe that as far as investing in the future goes, uh, that we should be focusing on providing that good quality of education. I was in Airdrie yesterday broadcasting. I'll bring that that community up, but I know there are others who are bursting at the seams when it comes to schools, and yet that's a, a school board that didn't get any new school funding announcements, and yet they're facing uh, having to shift kids around and trying to make all the jigsaw yeah. puzzles work. And so how do you deal with those communities that are really bursting and really needing some help from the growth pressures? Well, no question. We've had a lot of work to do to clean up the mess that we inherited and to catch up on that. Uh, when we were elected, we discovered that the hundreds of schools or so that the previous government had announced hadn't even been funded. So in the midst of the oil price drop, not only did we have to fund them, but we had to, we had to catch up very quickly and then move forward with the kinds of new projects that you're talking about. So since we were elected, we have built or modernized over 240 schools. And within our uh, our platform, we are talking about bringing schools as we try to come up, cu- uh, catch up with the very pressures that you are describing. But uh, part of what we were dealing with was uh, the hangover of, of a government that chose not to build schools to keep up with population pressures uh, while oil was at $100 a barrel. Uh, so we're doing it as, as responsibly as we can, and, um, and and we'll keep moving forward on it because we think our kids do deserve to uh, learn in, in uh, uh, good, clean, safe schools that are relatively close to where they live. Um, and so we're just going to roll up our sleeves and keep at it. NDP leader Rachel Notley joining us here on the program. One final question. I've asked this question of the other leaders as well. Is This has been a divisive campaign. There's no bones about it. How do you reach out to those across the aisle, both in the legislature and in the electorate, and try to work together, reach some kind of compromise to stop this divisiveness that we've seen during this campaign? Well, you know, it's always a bit of a challenge because there's a lot of factors at play. um, But uh, certainly in terms of trying to work with all members of the legislature once the election period is over. Uh, you know, I was in opposition for two terms from 2008 up until 2015. 
and uh, we hadn't really ever seen much opportunity for opposition members uh, to be hard policy making. Uh, but we, uh, once we got elected, we established an all-party committee to look into mental health, and we also established an all-party committee to look into child and uh, in both cases, we uh, got uh, uh, recommendations that were were um, supported by people outside, or you know, with multi-party, sorry, multi-caucus support, and uh, and and then we're working on implementing those. So we have some good examples of of cross-partisan um, projects that we've been able to work on, and uh, hopefully, you know, uh, if we are in government after the next election, we will uh, work very hard to have some more examples of that. Will you do the same if you're not the government in power? Uh, well, when you're in opposition, that's when you're especially looking for the opportunity uh, to actually participate in policy making. And as I say, when I was in opposition, that wasn't a thing that happened much, but uh, it would certainly be great if we saw it in the future. Uh, and, you know, we shall see. Premier, I do appreciate the time. All the best in the next few days. Well, thank you. It's been a pleasure chatting with you. All right. So, again, we had Stephen Mandel, Alberta Party, on Monday. Tuesday was David Kahn from the Liberals. Today, Rachel Notley. Tomorrow, Jason Kenney is the game plan going to this week. Because, again, my goal is to make sure that Albertans have a full picture as to what the vision of each of these parties is. I didn't. You've all heard the stories about Northern Gateway. You've heard the story, everything of the past. My goal is to talk about the future because that's what's most important going into this election campaign in my books. Scalger today on 770 CHQR. One of the issues that has kind of fallen by the wayside in everything that's been going on provincial election wise is the idea of trying to get a handle on the opioid crisis. And it really came top of mind for me. Uh, everybody's heard of the Twitter account Crack Max. Well, uh, earlier, it was about uh, almost a day ago now, they tweeted out saying someone just sent me a photo of a dead person downtown east side overdosed about 25. Hug your kids. The world sure sucks sometimes. This is the kind of thing that has been happening on a regular basis are the the overdoses. And we've talked at nauseum, I think, about how we get to the bottom of this. And so I wanted to bring it into a provincial election fold here. Donald McPherson's the executive director of the Canadian Drug Policy Coalition. He joins us now. Donald, thanks so much for the time today. That's a pleasure. It is one of those topics that has kind of taken a bit of a backseat in this provincial election campaign is the opioid crisis. And I wonder, you've spoken about this at length on a variety of occasions and even ahead of this election. What would you like to see the parties and the party leaders talking about when it comes to Alberta's situation when it comes to opioids? Well, the situation in Alberta with uh, the overdose crisis that is hitting uh, BC, Alberta, and Ontario very hard this past year and has been for about three years, four years now, um, it's, it's, a, it's a real significant life and death issue for many families uh, in Alberta who have loved ones who are using uh, opioids, uh, especially if they're using illegal opioids. So I would hope the uh, the discourse during the election, after the election, is you know uh, let's look at what we've done to date and how are we going to uh, uh, double down on some of the things we're doing because we're not having the impact that we we need to have to begin to reduce the overdoses occurring in Alberta. How would you grade the current government's actions and their way of dealing with the crisis as it's happened? 
I would I would grade the the, the current government's um, strategy and approach as being pretty good. Um, they've been able to ramp up a number of services uh, fairly quickly in terms of expanding outreach, expanding harm reduction, expanding substitution treatment offerings, uh, cre- creating some safer places for people to use these substances, uh, the seven, I believe, supervised consumption services in the province. Um, these are all really critical parts of the response, a comprehensive response to an overdose crisis. Uh, there's an excellent the commission that was established to look into this uh, acted fairly quickly. Um, there's some excellent sort of academic resources in Alberta uh, that have looked at drug policy issues and substance use issues for many years. So you, you whatever government uh, uh, assumes control of Alberta has a very strong team to work with um, to continue to build uh, an approach that that could start to turn the tide. So looking ahead, what do you think is the logical next step or steps in expanding upon what has already been built? Well, I think that it's an ongoing expansion of uh, life-saving services that cut across uh, the harm reduction sector, the treatment sector, uh, initiating uh, more drug checking services so people can begin to understand how toxic the substances uh, that they're using uh, are. Um, certainly, supporting first responders uh, at, at, at the front line are the big part of big part of this. Uh, supporting peer workers, uh, much of our the hope for turning the tide is uh, engaging as many people as possible who are at severe risk of overdose. So that takes a lot of outreach work. Uh, peers can do that really well because they know they know who's who and they know where to go to find people. Uh, there's a huge educational uh, uh, component of this at that the front line level. You mentioned the educational portion, and even for the electorate who is sitting here going, and I know there's been a lot of questions about safe consumption sites and are are they really the fix in all of this, and why are they so integral in your eyes? Um, they're part of a uh, part of a comprehensive approach. They've been used in Europe for over 30 years now. They're they're not going to solve the problem on their own, but the the facts are no one has died in a supervised consumption service. So if you're if you're worried about uh, your your family member or your youth who are using these substances, you would encourage them strongly to use a supervised setting. No one dies in these settings. Having said that, we need to do much more, including acknowledging that much of the problem that exists is driven by our drug policy itself. Uh, Drug prohibition has created this toxic, illegal drug market. So we have to move towards, uh, as we are doing here in BC and to some extent in Ontario, to talking about a safe supply of substances for people at severe risk of overdose. Here in Calgary, with those sites and uh, with the one site in particular down by the Sheldon Schumer Center, there were concerns about uh, increased crime around the sites and that kind of thing. How do you help alleviate those situations? What needs to happen to uh, make sure the residents are feeling safe around those sites? 
I think the, the, these sites exist within a context of a broader community, and I think it's important that uh, the community work together to try and solve some of those problems. It's really in jurisdictions where these services have been successful, you know, the, the police and the health folks work very closely together because at the end of the day, they're both trying to protect the human lives. Um, so I would encourage uh, I would encourage the municipalities and the provincial government to try and put in place some problem-solving processes that bring people together, including people with lived experience who are trying to access these kinds of services, to have that conversation. Uh, globally, most of these types of services uh, iron out any wrinkles that they have when they, they open and generally be just fade into the background uh, within a community context. For those communities who are looking at the possibility of adding a safe consumption site down the line, how important is it to get it right the first time in the sense of making sure that you do leave that positive footprint on the community before you know things kind of spiral out of control in terms of just the, the public perception surrounding a safe, uh, safe consumption site? Uh, certainly, there's a lot of preparatory work that one can do in terms of the location of the space, the configuration of the space, so you don't end up with lineups if you're, uh, it's a very busy space, or if there are people waiting to get in, that there's uh, ways of uh, managing those lineups. Um, I, I guess it's important for people to understand that these spaces are absolutely critical, a critical public health intervention into a very, very dangerous situation right now. Uh, the more communication and dialogue uh, you can have with neighbors, uh, I think that's important as well. And the police can play a very important role in, uh, in helping to uh, support uh, health in their efforts to engage uh, people at high risk of overdose. I wanted to get a little bit uh, further away from downtown city center and go towards the, the blood reserve in southwestern Alberta as an example of this is a place where uh, there's there's a little bit of a territorial match going on here because you have uh, the province trying to do its thing. You also have a federal government trying to do its thing and a municipal government also trying to figure it all out. How do you try to ta uh, navigate those waters? I think that's uh, something we hear across the country, and I think there really needs to be some pressure exerted uh, at the, on the federal level uh, by uh, localities and provinces that are uh, trying to address those multi-jurisdictional uh, situations. And um, it, it's it, it's not it's not uncommon to hear this type of tension uh, across the country, and it's, it's just going to take some hard work uh, with uh, provincial, local, provincial, and, and federal uh, uh, jurisdictions to try and work together and see this as an urgent uh, crisis-oriented response that's needed. How important is it also for levels of government to not just throw money at the situation and say, "You guys fix it yourselves." Uh, really important. I think some of the uh, the data that's emerging out of the uh, the commission that you've established, and the uh, again, I'll say you have some very smart people on that. And uh, because we're dealing with illegal drugs, uh, they're criminalized, and markets are in the shadows. Uh, it's really important to try and begin to understand how these markets work, uh, who's accessing them, what are the risks they're taking, and uh, and what's the quality of the substances on the market. So it's really important to uh, highlight a, a sort of active uh, research and action approach. 
Let's say we ha- you have the ear right now of all the major party leaders here in this province. What's your main message to them heading to the polls April 16th and as they're getting ready to potentially take over as government and uh, they're going to be inheriting an issue that is, is not going to go away anytime soon? Well, number one, I would say please don't make this a political issue. This is an urgent, critical life and death health issue. Um, it's not a political issue. Uh, I know from my experience in BC, all parties have agreed on uh, uh, the approaches we're using here. Uh, we've sort of transcended that uh, that time when uh, this kind of stuff was a political football. Um, and I'd really encourage them to to see that you know they're going to have to uh, look at the evidence, look at the research, and uh, probably spend more money in various where the where the evidence points uh, to possible success. And they're going to have to begin to have that discussion about the failure of the current policy to protect the health and safety of citizens of Alberta. Donald, I do appreciate the time today. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much. You are listening to Calgary Today here on 770 CHQR. We're going to take a look at a story that we've been talking about in the news as well. It's been a struggle, to say the very least, for New Horizon Mall trying to find uh, major tenants, tenants just in general. But they found an anchor tenant today. Prairie Horizon Fresh Market will be a 23,000 square foot fresh market expected to employ more than 150 people. It'll be run by Ken and Tracy Aylesworth, the owners of the Simons Valley Ranch Farmers Market. Ken joins us now on the program. Thanks for the time today. Thank you. This is a fantastic announcement that you guys are making in, in terms of you know what you guys have gone through over the last couple of years, but also expanding the uh, landscape when it comes to fresh markets. And give me a, a sense of what your vision is for your space now at New Horizon Mall. Well, the will become another community gathering point, another destination, another place for local growers to present their product uh, I'm really excited because, as you know, there's nothing on a year-round basis in Northwest Calgary uh, or Northeast Calgary. So it really gives uh, an opportunity for those vendors and for the customers uh, to be able to go and get local products, have an experience, make it a destination. It'll be fun for, uh, for everyone. How long has this idea been percolating in the mind, or is this something that uh, that only recently that you kind of went, okay, maybe this is an option for us? Well, actually, uh, it was early in, in this new year that uh, uh, the folks, the development company, uh, spoke to us, and and uh, we were contracted to help them come up with a design and a concept. And the, uh, the Torgon group have been absolutely amazing. And uh, we're sure excited to be uh, working alongside of them. And uh, they see this as a really neat opportunity to bring, uh, first of all, to supply another market and to help the vendors, but also to bring people to the New Horizon Mall and let them see what an amazing facility it is, as well as the vendors that are uh, quickly now starting to open more businesses throughout that whole structure. Talk us through what you expect to see as a consumer when you walk into this 23,000 square foot space. Well, it, it's called a Prairie Horizon Fresh Market, and uh, it's all based uh, around the theme that, in, you know, in the old days, when you looked across the prairies, 
and you saw a windmill, that's where you saw there was life. There was things happening. You could get food. There was animals. There were people. And that's exactly what this will do. When you walk in the doors of New Horizon Mall, you'll go into Prairie Horizon Fresh Market. And the entire design is really that of kind of an old prairie farm town. And uh, it'll be gorgeous. Uh, almost every different booth will have a different uh, motif uh, that gives you that, that prairie feeling. And you'll have an array of local vendors, uh, every fruits and vegetables and proteins, beef, chicken, lamb, pork, all those things, as well as bakery. And then uh, a whole number of uh, restaurants that will also be uh, uh, spotted throughout the building. This is kind of an interesting concept in terms of the notion of, especially nowadays where everybody's wanting to go local, everybody's wanting to go fresh and to be able to bring that all together and not only have just the the market itself, but also to have, you know, restaurants on site and that kind of thing that are using those. It's going to be a real uh, team oriented approach, I assume. That's a great way to explain it. Uh, it really is. A, it's a team uh, approach. And what people want, they want to know where their their food is coming from, how it's produced. Uh, they want to, they want to get back to know uh, their neighbor and, uh, for whatever reason, a market helps fill that void. So people come, uh, you know, they buy their fresh vegetables. Um, we'll have the ability where people will be able to buy their vegetables, go over to a chef, and, and they'll make you up a meal. Or you can just buy a meal off of their menu. But those chefs will have been purchasing product from the actual local producers. The transparency of where that product comes from, how it's raised, who raises it, who, who grows it? That's what people are looking for. And the, they, they sit at big communal tables, and you're, you're more likely to have a table of eight or ten people to say hi to your neighbor and have a visit and talk about what you're eating and sharing, and, and hopefully those grow into friendships and, and opportunities. So that's really, we're, we're obviously focusing on the, the provision of the products, but more so we want it to be a destination. We really want people to be comfortable uh, to come there and just enjoy. A whole lot of issues that people are thinking about heading into the provincial election uh, on Tuesday. And one of those has been highlighted as I toured, toured around the province with the rural roadshow in particular. A lot of people saying, hey, you know what? Our small town senior citizens complex is crumbling. We need some kind of help, some sort of plan of action. Irene Martin Lindsay is the executive director of the Alberta Seniors Communities and Housing Association. She joins us now for a little bit of a sneak peek into what she'd like to see on the election docket. Irene, thanks so much for the time today. Happy to be here. Let's talk about what you think is the number one issue when it comes to seniors care and that in our province heading into Tuesday's vote. The um, biggest focus I, I think that they have to have going in that a new government has to have is one on seniors wellness because I think our system has been very focused on the 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 um, sickness part and they treat that one piece and they don't treat the whole person. So housing is one of the social de determinants of health and what we have seen over decades is that if people have the right housing supports and the, the right wraparound supports, it saves the system a ton of money and it makes their quality of life 
a hundred times better. So we need to find a way to make that happen, and our current system does not support that. Talk about the idea of community living, and especially, I look at small-town Alberta in particular. I know the cities are have their own issues to deal with, but when you see smaller communities and the, the housing issues that they have, they, they all of a sudden are being displaced and put into larger centres, and uh, that can affect their health and, and well-being as well. Well... In some of the smaller rural areas, we really need to be more creative than ever. And part of what's been happening there is is so many of the medical services moved away that, that folks were struggling if they needed specialist appointments or whatnot with travel to get in. I know some of our members have come up with some creative solutions of having, you know, a doc or a nurse or a, you know, nurse practitioner come and visit uh, the residents in the community living maybe once a week or something to that effect. But I I think we need to be creative to help people age in their communities of choice where they want to. So if you have the right place to live, we need to find a way to figure out how to to serve them in, in the place they choose to call home. And, and with the, with the um, a social setting and, you know, having the right socialization, the right nutrition, you're way more set up for success. One of the things that I've heard loud and clear from a number of municipalities is even if they do have a senior's home, for example, is those senior homes are aging. Uh, and one of the issues that's popped up, I know uh, some are saying that, hey, we have a flooded basement every spring or we have uh, ceilings that are crumbling in or, you know, and, and the, the, the laundry list of issues is piling up. And when it comes to the new government, how important is it going to be for them to realize what kind of infrastructure deficit we have or infrastructure needs we have and address them before some of these homes become uh, not usable anymore? Absolutely. And I mean, so either, you know, looking at is there any useful life, you know, left in the building? Do we rebuild? Do we do we refurbish? We've also had changing needs in the expectations of of the people. Um, You know, a a 200 square foot room is now the size of someone's walk in closet. So we need to we need to rethink what we're doing and build places where we would consider living one day since we're all in the process of aging. One of the things that I've heard from economists and others alike is that this is a this is a problem that we're going to be facing sooner rather than later is that aging baby boomer crisis that is uh, just coming down the line and and we need to get ahead of these problems before it really starts to uh, show its head. Well, I would agree. And we also need to change the conversation. People seem quite comfortable knowing they're going to, um, you know, die one day. Sorry to be so bold. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and maybe even plan their funeral and how they want the celebration with their, lump, with their loved ones. But nobody wants to talk about not being able to do everything themselves. And then what that might look like and what choices they might make. And there seems to be a real difference between even what the boomers and the Gen Xers think is going to happen, that it doesn't affect them. And yet they're going to be the sandwich folks, just like, you know, many uh, folks Mm -hmm. are stuck at right now. And it's going to be a real situation for all of us. So it really affects all of us. And we need to start thinking about it. How important is it going to be for families to really have those conversations going forward so that they can, and I mean, I, my family was no different. Is it, it became an uncomfortable conversation to be sure, but at the same time, it was needed in the sense of ne- uh, having everybody at the table and understanding, hey, this is A, what we can afford, but even beyond that is this is the best place for our grandparent or 
or whoever, our family member, to get the care they need and deserve. Yeah, and and you know what's interesting is only 10% of the population ever lands or ever chooses to be in a congregate living setting or ever kind of ends up there. And 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 so 90% of the population has always um somehow managed to live where they are um and and has has moved along to the next life. Mm-hmm. Be that what it may on their own terms. If if you know maybe they were healthy right till that end. What we're seeing is people are living longer and and there's where there's a lot of chronic things going on. So we need to think about the health condition and what we want for ourselves or for our loved ones. Should that happen? Certainly a conversation worth happening for sure. I'm glad we were able to have it as well, Irene. Thank you so much for joining us this afternoon. All right. Thanks so much. Irene Martin Lindsay is the executive director of the Alberta Seniors Communities and Housing Association. Another topic of discussion around uh, a few different plates, uh, around a few different tables, pardon me, uh, during the supper hours as we get closer and closer to Tuesday's election. Turning our attention now to a conversation I had earlier today, and I'm only going to play a snippet of it because it's a 15-minute conversation. It started as something that was going to be really simple and then turned its head on its head. His name is Felipe Massetti, and if you can imagine driving across the country or across North America, now imagine doing it on horseback. That's what Philippe is doing He's going to be going, he's already done two-thirds of the, the trek. He's done two out of three legs. The next leg is from Fairbanks, Alaska to Calgary. He's been sit, uh, staying in southern Alberta the last few days, and he's going to be heading out to Penticton in a couple of days here, but I had a chance to speak with him just uh, over the noon hour today, and here's that sh- uh, little bit of his story and why he got into this whole notion. So it all started with a book. Uh, my dad used to read me Chifley's Ride, when I was just a little boy, it's the story of Vane Chifley, a Swiss school teacher who, in 1925, saddled two horses in Buenos Aires, Argentina, and rode all the way to New York City in the United States. It's an epic tale. And I'm from a cowboy family, so my father used to wear cowboy hat and spurs, and I was always on my little horses in the ranch in Brazil, just imagining what it would be like to cross all those countries on horseback. You flash forward to uh, 2012. I had just graduated from journalism at Ryerson University in Toronto. I ended up uh, studying journalism here in Canada. And the dream turned into a project. I, ha- I got everything I needed, and I rode out of the Calgary Stampede July 8, 2012. And I rode from Calgary all the way to Ushuaia, the southernmost point in the Americas, a small uh, island off the coast of Argentina on the tip of South America. And now... I have 4,000 kilometers left to finish off the Americas from north to south. And as you said, it will be from Fairbanks to Calgary. That's an incredible story. Why this year? Did all the stars just align? Or what kind of led you to this point where you're getting ready to saddle up again? So it was just, uh, I finished the first trip. It's been three legs. The first leg from Canada to Brazil took me 803 days across across 10 nations, 16,000 kilometers. I stopped for a year, wrote my book on that first journey. It's called Long Ride Home. Uh, you can find it on Amazon. It became a number one bestseller. And then I went on the second leg, which was from Brazil to Ushuaia. That took one year and three months, 7,500 kilometers through three countries. Took a year off again. Uh, just finished writing my second book 
uh, it will be released when I arrive in Calgary in 2020. And uh, now is the time, you know, winter is just finishing. I've been planning for a year now. Uh, strategic planning is life or death for me. It's extremely important. I've been talking to people out uh, in Alaska, in the Yukon, here in Calgary, getting everything I needed. I'm going to be riding uh, two Mustangs from the Penticton Indian Band out in British Columbia, which I'm really excited about. So been getting everything ready, and uh, now is the time to uh, jump into the saddle and ride off into the unknown. You mentioned the planning aspect of it, and I'm curious, was there a motivational factor behind it? Are you trying to do this for charity? Are you doing for this for awareness, or is this just for something where you can say, hey, this is something that I did at some point, and I've got a story to tell now? For sure. You know, it all started with a dream, you know, a childhood dream that I wanted to live. And when I told people about it before I left Calgary, when I was, you know, a broke journalism student, I didn't have a horseshoe to do this with. Uh, when I was trying to get the sponsorship, people called me crazy. They said it was impossible that I was going to die. So the first reason why I do this is to show people that if you have a dream, if you have something you want to do with your life, it may seem like the most impossible thing in the world. If you want it with your heart, with your soul, with your everything, nothing is impossible. Uh, the second reason is I want to inspire people to live a more natural way of life, to reconnect with our nature, you know, to feel the rain, uh, to feel the sun, to camp out, get to know our natural world, this cowboy heritage that I have that my father passed down to me and I see uh, that we are losing in the 21st century is very important for me. And the final reason why, why I ride is to raise money uh, for a children's cancer hospital in Brazil. Uh, they need uh, $7 million monthly to keep the doors open. They don't charge anything for the kids they're treating. So uh, I raise funds for them during my journey. If you want to follow Felipe on his trek, you can follow him on Twitter at Felipe Massetti. I have posted the full interview uh, for podcast form wherever you get your favorite podcasts. I've also uh, posted up on my Twitter at Calgary today if you want to take a listen. It's a 15-minute chat that will definitely get you inspired to uh, follow your dreams. Love that chat with Felipe Massetti. Uh, big thanks as well to Marie Aiken for dropping me a line and letting me know about that story. If you know of another story that inspires or anything else, make sure to drop me an email or a note because I love telling stories like that. Thank you so much for downloading today's podcast. Do me a huge favor and leave a rating and a comment. And you can always hit me up on Twitter as well. Just follow me at Calgary today.